2: Welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined today by a special guest, Jane McGrath. Hi, Candace, Thanks for having me. Of course. Welcome to Fact or Fiction. Thank you. If you are anything like me, you've been completely bombarded with news of the election. Oh, yeah, definitely. The question on people's minds, who will be the next president of the United States? I think the acronym for that is POTUS, <laughs> but I'm curious to know who is going to be the next first lady of the United States or the FLOTUS. So, and when you talk about First Lady, I'm sure there are several names that come to mind. For me, at least, I think of Jackie O. Oh, definitely. Or Eleanor
1: Roosevelt. Hillary Clinton. Yeah. um, Even going back to, like, Martha Washington and stuff like that. the first First Lady. Yeah. And, you know, when Martha was First Lady,
2: the title First Lady hadn't even been thought of. Really? She was called Lady Washington. And it wasn't until Zachary Taylor delivered a eulogy for Dolly Madison that anyone use the term first lady. I think he called her our first lady of the United States. And then the term didn't stick until 1861 when it was applied to Mary Todd Lincoln. Wow! And then Webster's picked it up a little while later. It was in the dictionary. It became official. But until then, people had tossed around words like Mrs. President or just Lady or doesn't have the same ring. No. <laughs> no, it doesn't have like the same cachet as First Lady. Yeah, and a couple of zingers were thrown in there, like Her Majesty, and that was a real insult if a First Lady. Yeah, was it doesn't best. seem right for America. <laughs> no, they were trying to break from the monarchy. Yeah, but First Lady was tricky for Washington. Because she had no idea how the office was supposed to go. And I think all the First Ladies in that era, the first era of First Ladies, about 1789 to 1817, um, there's this book by Robert P. Watson all about the First Lady, and he defines these eras, and he calls that one the era of queenly
1: First Ladies. That makes sense, because they're very matronly and and reserved, and they stay in the background. They do. It's like they're trying to figure out, what is the
2: United States? Mm -hmm. How do I fit in? But then, after the Queenly First Ladies, we have an era from about 1817 to 1869 that Watson calls
1: the era of common first ladies or idle first ladies. Yeah, and that makes sense, because the uh, I guess the presidents elected during that time became more common men presidents, and so their ladies sort of followed suit, and they were the same way. Exactly, not as regal,
2: more plain folk, if you would. (laughs) 1869 to 1901, this matches up with the Gilded Age in America, and suffrage started becoming a bigger deal. First ladies themselves were a little bit more active, and they came into the office really well-educated, usually with some pretty nice talents to their names. And then right around the turn of the century, and
1: after that, we have the first modern First Lady. And that makes sense, because uh, the president by that time was able to openly condone suffrage, and and, uh, the president and First Lady were were able to, together, be behind a particular political movement that that struck close to home. Yeah, they were
2: co-campaigners,
1: almost. Not exactly
2: partners, per se, but they were definitely in that position together, And around 1945 to 1975 was the era of media buzz and the first family was the subject of newspapers and the camera lens and they were everywhere and as we get later toward that era and television comes into play, that especially had a big effect and we see First ladies starting to become a little bit more conventional again because I think on the whole that's what a lot of Americans wanted to see. And then 1975, until the present day, we have the
1: totally modern first lady, and she is the president's partner at this point. Yeah, she becomes much more politically active in of herself, not even as a co campaigner just by herself. Would you say that's true? Yeah, and that raises an interesting question, and that is... What is the First Lady supposed to do? That's a good question, because uh, a lot of it depends, uh, a First Lady sort of defines her own role, and it depends on her personality a lot, uh, whether she wants to be active, or whether she wants to be in the background. And especially because the First Lady, the office of First Lady, isn't um, listed in the Constitution by any right. So uh, it it's an odd role in that she can define it herself.
2: And we call it extra constitutional because the only way she can come into the office of first lady is by marrying the man who is elected president. And so that right there sort of implies that she has to be a wife and a mother or a grandmother. Um, I think that people would like to see her represent some aspect of the American family. She has to be a campaigner, like we've already said. She has to be a hostess at the White House. She has to serve the teas and the state dinners and receive guests. She has to continue a line of traditions, Um the Easter egg roll, the lighting of the Christmas tree, things like this that people look to, you know, just for a little bit of amusement. Washington can be very heavy sometimes. <laughs> so we like to see a lot of children on the White House lawn. It just it makes us happy, or at least me. And... More recently now than in the past, we see the First Lady coming in with a platform. And it could be anything from Nancy Reagan's Just Say No anti-drug campaign to Hillary Clinton advocating for child's welfare or um, Laura Bush, who is a big advocate of literacy, for instance.
1: That's true. And I was I was pondering something uh, about this podcast. Do you think the political parties matter to the role of the First Lady? Gosh, when I asked you to be my special guest, I didn't know it was going
2: to be such a hard fact or oh, fiction question. <laughs> Gosh, that's tough, Jane. If we really want to look at it in terms of Democratic First Ladies versus Republican First Ladies and speak in very general terms, I would say the Democratic ones, who, for me at least, that means Eleanor Roosevelt, for instance, Hillary Clinton, we see them much more politically active. They attend congressional hearings. They help to propose new policies. They advise their husbands. They really are partners. Whereas Republican First Ladies, again, a generalization, are more partners in marriage. They tend to fulfill more traditional roles, you know, being the wife, supporting the husband and and the decisions that he has to make. We look at someone like Barbara Bush, for instance, Mm -hmm. and I think that it was pretty obvious that she didn't relish all of the responsibilities that came along with being First Lady. But she fulfilled them, and she was better at the hostessing side, and I think she enjoyed that aspect more than policymaking.
1: Yeah, I think that correlates a bit to um, political philosophies in a way. Like, you look at Democrats who typically tend to be a little bit more uh, liberal and uh, see a a more active role of the federal government, whereas Republicans, um, as a contrary, they, they tend to be more conservative and like the federal government to take less of a role. So it sort of correlates to the... First Lady as well. It's pretty interesting. Definitely. And the First Lady, like
2: the presidency itself, is an office that is not without its scandals. And if we were to (laughs) probe back, I mean, we could... Look as far back as a couple hundred years ago or even a few years ago and and see what has been brewing in in the East Wing, which is where Eleanor Roosevelt set up the first First Lady's office. Um, Interestingly enough, Hillary Clinton actually requested that the First Lady's office be moved to the West Wing. Even more involved. <laughs> even more involved so that she would have closer proximity to the Oval Office. Mm. Again, we have a very tight partnership that we see in that relationship between President and First Lady. But like I said, there's all sorts of scandals that come with trying to define an extra constitutional office. And I know that you had a few favorite
1: examples in history of some first ladies who will drop your jaw, really. Yeah, well, one big scandal um, that I found interesting was one concerning uh, Rachel Jackson. Uh, it's pretty interesting because Rachel, you know, she came sort of from the backwoods country and... Um, when she was young, she married this one guy named Louis Robards. And uh, from the beginning, it was a pretty rocky marriage. Like, he was apparently of the jealous type. And uh, it, they soon split up. Um, things didn't work out for them. And a couple of years later, Rachel heard that Robards got a d- uh, followed a divorce, and she was a free woman. So she, uh, in the meantime, had met this gallant lad by named Andrew Jackson, oh, and yeah. she was ready to marry him. Mm-hmm. So uh, she did that, only to find out two years later that uh, Robards did not actually get a divorce. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. So yeah, had a
2: heyday, didn't
1: they? they did um you can imagine what his uh, political opponents would say and he actually ended up getting into a few du- duels um as a result of um of accusations about the scandals with Rachel and she was actually an unlikely center of this drama because as a woman she was uh, she was rather a portly woman let's say uh and she smoked a pipe and a cigar, actually, which was common in where she came from, but not so much in the uh, Washington political elite. Uh, so she was not really a big fan of, of becoming a first lady. And, uh, and all the while, during the presidential campaign, she was getting maligned. Uh, and so actually, she died right before she got a chance to enter the, the White oh, House. Gosh. Yeah. And uh, Jackson always blamed her death on the media attacks. And, you know, there aren't enough duels today. You don't see a lot of people going after
2: (laughs) the the media and challenging them to duels. I think it was, what, Hugh Grant, I think, threw a soup can or something? (laughs) Some paparazzi um, a couple months ago. And, you know, that's great. Challenge people to duels when they put you in a bad light. No, no, don't. (laughs) I'm not advocating that at all. (laughs) Um, I imagine it's really hard to be constantly in the press's eye like that. Even this past year, when um Jenna Bush was planning her wedding. It was in newspapers, it was on entertainment shows, it was on news shows, you know, the, a White House wedding is a big to do, and she yeah. ended up not even having a White House wedding because she wanted some, you know, smidgen of privacy to this special day. But you mm-hmm. can't really have that privacy when you're in the first family because your life becomes a public spectacle. And in that regard, You have to tolerate all sorts of jabs that are thrown your way. And one of my favorite things that someone has said in regards to this bad press actually came from Hillary. She was actually quoted as saying, I read stories and hear things about me and I go, ugh. I wouldn't like her either. (laughs) And I think what a great attitude to have because you really Mm -hmm. would have to let things roll off your back. Especially when people are saying you're taking too much power or you're not, you're not taking enough. You're sitting by idle. And that was a criticism that befell Mary Todd Lincoln back when she was in the White House, of course, during, you know, the midst of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. She became really unpopular for one, because she was spending a lot of money. Yeah. She did this as a way to offset some depression that came from the death of one of her sons.
1: Of course. But also- and, and she also had relations in the fighting for the South, I believe, in the Civil War. Exactly. That puts her in a tough position. Yeah, because her husband, obviously, was advocating for the Union. Mm-hmm. And then she had
2: family who was fighting for the Confederacy. So she was a woman torn in two. Yeah. And the press ripped her apart. You know, she was a Kentucky Southern belle who happened to marry a man who became the president of the United States. And she may not have been prepared for that position. I think she thought that Washington was going to be all parties and balls. (laughs) And during the Civil War, it was not, most definitely. And she would get terrible migraines and fits of panic. And, Mm. you know, I wish I could have been there to see this. But apparently, even if Lincoln were presenting a speech somewhere or at a rally where he was speaking if, Ray, uh, not Rachel, excuse me, if Mary Todd were taken over by illness, everything would stop. And really? it was about her suddenly. <laughs> you know, never mind the fact that people are dying on battlefields. <laughs> and this is actually something that people in America said to her. You know, she was grieving the loss of her child. And they're saying, our sons are dying on battlefields. At least you mm-hmm. got to be at your son's side when he died. But the, the attention stuff, was about yeah. her. Yeah. And people were not happy about it. Mm-hmm. So... All sorts of crazy first lady scandals out there, but I think that a lot remains to be seen in the upcoming years as the next um, president is chosen, and by virtue of that, the next first lady. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. It is, depending on you know what her her platform will be, how she'll approach the
1: office. Mm-hmm.
2: It's a wide open
1: book. And we are actually going to reveal Jane's presidential namesake. That's right. Uh, it's Madison. My middle name is Madison. Jane Madison McGrath. Yeah, my dad was a big Constitution buff. (laughs) For those
2: of you keeping score, mine is Candace May Gibson. (laughs) Two great names. And for two, plus like a million more interesting topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands
0: of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class. The 27 Club is a new podcast
2: about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season 1 features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple
1: Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears.